Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. This podcast is sponsored by Small Farm University, the go-to resource for gardeners, homesteaders, and farmers around the world. Small Farm University delivers classes online and on demand with training on how to grow crops and how to grow a profitable farm business that serves you, your family, and your community well. Delivered by real farmers with hands-on experience and expertise, it's unique in its approach, using the RIPED method for growing and building a farm or farm business. SFU membership includes access to a private Facebook group and monthly live Q&A sessions where you can get your questions answered and find the support you need. To learn more, visit growingfarmers.com today. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today my guest is Shelly Katz, who is the founder of Heart of Palms Ranch and Eco Farm in Fort Myers, Florida. After a journey that included conservation internships and training in permaculture design, Shelly earned a bachelor's degree in agricultural science and is now a regenerative agriculture consultant. Her Eco Farm, Heart of Palms, grows perennial and subtropical produce using regenerative practices, as well as provides agritourism activities such as farm stays, camping, and tours. Shelly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Michael. Yeah, so give me a little bit of a background of you know how you got into the whole world of agriculture. Yeah, I started gardening when I was 18 at my friend's parents' farm and really just fell in love with the whole process of watching plants become crops. And... Um, decided to continue gardening for a few seasons and then thought I'm going to try to do whatever I can to get into this industry and uh, got a conservation internship where we worked on community farms, uh, community gardens, arboretums, kalo farms. This was in Hawaii. So we were Mm -hmm. doing a lot of um, small farms in Hawaii, supporting them and doing native and invasive species management and then eventually I I was I brought came back to the mainland to Virginia and I've worked um, at nurseries and as a, a horticulture technician and all kinds of anything in the industry of horticulture or ag. Interesting. And then eventually became a vegetable farm manager. Very cool. All right. So talk a little bit more about um you said you were in Hawaii for a while. What kind of crops were you focused on or working with there? The, the internships I was in, we were primarily focused on taro. Okay. And so in Hawaii, they grow taro a lot in um, a, 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 like a, a muddy bed called a lo'i. Okay. And so it's, it's very much like always wet and below subsurface. Um, so building those and we'd, we'd also um, work on like community vegetable gardens. Okay, very cool. And then with taro, talk to me a little bit about like the growing aspects of that. What um, what are the kind of, you said a muddy bed, so it takes a lot of water. Um, what are some of the challenges with that crop? It's been a long time since I participated on farming in Aloe. I think one of the hardest parts it seemed like was developing the bed itself mm. because you really have to excavate an area and then build up um, 
these rows and really I'm it's not it's not my expertise I just participated in developing them but I think gotcha. it took you know 12 16 of us to build one together and it's very labor intensive to develop the bed and you can't drive tractors around in there so it's a very um, manual labor type mm. of crop yeah absolutely um and then did you do any work out there with ginger um, there was always ginger growing on the small farms that we'd work on. Okay. Uh, we're growing ginger here in Fort Myers and, um, turmeric. Um, but yeah, it's mostly vegetables, taro. And then I, I did work trade on some farms with bananas and fruit trees. Yeah. And, um, from what I understand with the bananas is, um, are you doing any special varieties with bananas or is it just the gen the main variety that's common across the U.S., the Cavendish variety? We grow dwarf namwa, tall namwa, uh, dwarf Cavendish, uh, blue java, and we've started growing plantains and Orinoco bananas. So we're definitely expanding our banana varieties here in Fort Myers. Very cool. All right. So then you kind of did the internships and then I think you said you became a vegetable farm manager. Talk to us a little bit about like where that was and what that entailed. Yeah, and in Moab, Utah, I managed a one and a half acre vegetable farm that supplied produce to um, a resort restaurant. Okay. And that was, you know, a desert environment. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful place right by Arches National Park and um, very saline soils. A lot of farmers in that area have to wash the, the salt out of the soil. And um, I was actually surprised how well everything did because you know, you think in the desert, it's going to be hard to grow anything, but yeah, irrigation and um, we made worm castings there and actively aerated teas, um, used a lot of the kitchen waste as compost. So we were actually able to grow some really beautiful eggplant and peppers and uh, potatoes and tomatoes and greens, all kinds of good stuff came out of that garden. And then after that, I went to Portland, Oregon and managed a vegetable farm up there that was certified organic. And uh, we were we were managing a lot of successions for like around 20 different crops and growing through the winter in a, a large greenhouse. So it was a lot to stay on top of all these different successions of different crops and making sure you have this variety available Monday, Wednesday, Friday each week. Mm -hmm. Now with that, um... Were you seeing a lot of like seasonal variability with the growing conditions? Yeah. So in in the winter in Oregon, we would grow in uh, about a, an acre, uh, a greenhouse that's close close to an acre. Wow. Uh, a very large greenhouse, and so we'd only grow like cool season veg in that greenhouse, mm -hmm. and then in the summer we'd grow peppers and tomatoes and. Um, squash and pumpkins in the field. Mm -hmm. um, in Utah, we grew, we tried, it was like zone 6B in Utah, so we couldn't do a whole lot in the winter. It was, um, we did have some, some of those low, low tunnels that we built mm -hmm. up and mm -hmm. did carrots and lettuce and tails and, you know, kind of got early start and late, late end of the season using those. Yeah. So after, you know, doing these, these farm management, uh, what was next for you? 
while I was uh, in farm management, I started going back to school part-time to finish my degree. And um, I, I finished in 2020 and I, I decided that, um, well, my, it, what happened was my mom was ready to sell her house, the, the house I grew up in, in the DC area. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of realized that she was ready to sell it. And I was in a place where I had just finished school and really ready to start my own farm um, with her help. And it, it part of it came from being in vegetable gr growing and farming it's just it's very intense on the body yeah and um i always had a love for growing perennials and growing fruit trees um and the little experience i had in in hawaii and then we also grew some figs on the organ farm i just love growing perennials so much and the idea that you you don't always have to um be squatted down bending over for the rest of your life oh, yes yes <laughs> it's uh it's it, it just got it got hard on the joints and, you know, waking up feeling like the tin man every day. Yeah. I just thought I want to move away from this in, in some, some way, at least part of my day, I'd like to be, be standing up, uh, picking fruit or pruning trees. Mm -hmm. So um, let's talk a little bit about like, what does that uh, perennial cropping look like? Uh, when we moved to Florida, it was very much like a whole new learning curve for me. It's a new climate, uh, new soils, new crops, new plants that I've never worked with. Um, so I have been in like an experimentation trial phase for quite a while. And we're now realizing like what's going to work best for our site and what uh -huh. to focus on um, commercially. But it was a lot of just research and buying random plants and seeds and trying a bunch of different things. One thing um, that I've realized is there are some crops that like will produce like weeds down here. Mm. And so I'm trying to focus on the things that are the most low maintenance yes. so that we can produce the most calories for the, the least effort out of them. And that right now, um, you know, that's kind of also going to be a crop that does well in poor soils because the soils were developing slowly. Um, so we're in a, a phase right now where we need to grow crops that grow well with poor soils and produce well. And so that mm. would be um, mulberries and bananas and sweet potatoes. Um, and then we're we're trying other things like Suriname cherry, Barbados cherry, um, strawberry tree, and then roots like turmeric and ginger. Those do really well. Mm -hmm. Now talk to me a little about strawberry tree. What's that like? That is the strangest fruit because it tastes just like cotton candy. Oh, it's really? A, a small, it's like, it's like the size of a large blueberry. Okay. And you take a bite of it and it's like, that is just so strange because it tastes just like cotton candy. <laughs> All right. And what's the season for that? It's, it's got a lot of fruit on it right now. It's, it's got heavy fruit on it now. Um, mm -hmm. It's all green though, so it's ripening. So I'd say um, probably ripening in June, July. Mm. And, is, and I'm assuming that's a tropical plant, so you can only grow it in Florida or tropics. 
Yeah, I think it's subtropical, but we have um, loquats also, and mm -hmm. those I think can be grown in a little bit colder temperatures. We're going to do some low chill peaches and figs also. Yeah. Um, and I think the mulberry that we grow can also be grown in cooler temperatures. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. And then like what growing systems are you using? Are you mulching them heavily or kind of like, what's the, how's the setup? Yeah. Heavy mulch. Um, one thing, one of the best things I did for our farm was to build our beds up by excavating a trench along uh -huh. the edge of the bed and then displacing that soil onto a berm. Mm -hmm. um, that was what saved us from Hurricane Ian because we had flooding that was about eight inches for two weeks consistently. Then it went down and then it rained and the water went back up again. So about a month of flooding. Mm. Um, so building up those beds and then we fill the trench with organic matter and then cover the bed with horse manure and mm -hmm. wood chips. So he yeah. yeah, heavy, heavy mulch. Very cool. Um, and then kind of have you treated with any like um, prebiotics or like any like uh, soil treatments or have you put in worms to try to build the soil life up? Um, I think so. Everyone down here is crazy about millipedes. Okay. And so you will see millipedes just show up when the soil's healthy enough. There's enough organic matter. So um I think we have millipedes. I keep hoping that we have them. I need to dig around and look for them some, but a lot yeah. of folks in my area have millipedes and um, millipoo is like trending. Okay. Um, but I, I use my company products and I work for advancing eco agriculture. And yep. so we have seed inoculants and biological inoculant products and also um, mineral products. Mm. So you're using those to kind of build the life. Um, let's talk a little bit about that job. So what do you work with? Uh, what do you do for AEA? I work as a um, Regen Ag consultant and sales development representative. Okay. And so I um, I help farmers uh, understand how to use our products. And also um, I, I read SAP tests so that we can look at the micronutrient levels in a crop and where mm -hmm. the nitrate and ammonium levels are at, and then build a program based on the SAP results. Mm. All right, let's talk through a little bit. You mentioned SAP um, analysis there. Let's share, I know some people are brand new to farming here. So kind of share a little bit about that and how that works. Yeah, so I think a lot of people are familiar with tissue analysis mm -hmm. and tissue analysis is just gonna give you like one point in time um, and it also includes all the nutrients that are in like the structural components of the leaf. Mm -hmm. So the sap analysis is more of like a blood test, but for plants mm. and you're, you're testing both the old and the new leaf, because depending on, um, the mobility of the nutrient that you want to understand, you're going to want to see the old leaf levels as compared to the new leaf levels so that mm -hmm. you can understand how deficient or what, what kind of deficiency or how to address the deficiency or imbalance um, given the context of where the old leaf is at and where the new leaf is at. And so we're testing for micronutrients as well with that. Gotcha. All right. So let's say someone wants to do a sap analysis. Um, how many leaves of each type? So you have old leaves and where is the, like how far down the plant do you typically take those old leaves off? 
you're going to want the collection to be to be high integrity, even though it's like an older leaf, you want it to be the oldest functional leaf. Mm. All right. And so then you're also going to take from the top whirl and like how high up in, in that do you do you count down from the top or how do you make sure you get the right ones up the top? Yeah. You'll also count down about three from the top to make sure okay. it's a fully developed, fully formed leaf. And you'll want to get around a hundred grams of both. Yep. And that's, that makes one, one sample set. Okay. All right. And then I'm assuming you put them in separate, separate bags and then send them in. And I believe it's really important to get them there really quick. So you want to overnight them? Yeah, definitely. All right. So we're overnighting these leaves to you guys. And then you guys do a sample, a test on them. And how long does it take for the test results to come back? It's very quick. It's about a week. Okay. And that, um, that's really a huge benefit in season because we can make in season nutrient adjustments and, um, really change the outcome for the crop based on mm -hmm. if there's some deficiencies showing up at certain points in the season. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so like if, and with some clients you've worked with, what are some common nutrient deficiencies that you see? It, it often depends on the soil. Um, but manganese is a really common deficiency, um, yeah. iron and a big part of iron and manganese deficiency is that they need to be in the reduced state in a soil in order for the plant to use them. So you may have manganese and iron show up on your soil test, mm. but the plant can't actually use it because manganese and iron is typically in an oxidized state because most of our ag soils are oxidized. Mm. Um, so we use manganese and iron foliar applications to get the plant the reduced form and chelated form of these nutrients. All right. So then, so those are common ones. And remind me again, what did those two um, nutrients are they responsible for, responsible for in the plant? Iron is a major component um, for chlorophyll mm. and um, developing carotenoids. And manganese is responsible for um, water hydrolysis, which is splitting the water molecule during the process of photosynthesis. So manganese can be um, the greatest limiting factor for a crop. If you're low in manganese, then uh, your photosynthesis is going to be pretty limited. Gotcha. Um, all right. And so what, let's, let's talk through like, what is a typical program? Let's say we've got strawberries and uh, we really want to basically maximize our yields on that. Um, how does the process with like AEA work for making sure that we have the, the right things in the soil? Uh, one of our foundational programs is the soil primer, mm -hmm. and that includes an inoculant and then a support package to make sure that the inoculant is successful and um, really uh, develops high populations in the soil. So that's um, going to be supported with rejuvenate and sea shield, which are nutrients for the, for the organisms to develop uh, stronger populations in the soil. And gotcha. so we'll use soil primer uh, in the spring and fall every year for the first few years to start to develop the exact species that we want in the soil that we know have those supportive mechanisms with the crop. Gotcha. Okay. So it's kind of, and then I'm assuming you, you, you pair that with like a sap analysis in the spring, early spring to make sure the plants are on the right track. Yeah, we will do for high value crops, we'll do sap analysis around every two weeks 
and mm -hmm. then for like broad acre around um three times a season maybe a little more a little less um and so the the sap analysis tells us if we need to make a micronutrient foliar because you may have added some bulk amendment in the spring or the fall but that amendment may not be available for the plant to take up yet mm -hmm. so it's there but it's not quite accessible to the plant roots and so we use these micronutrient foliars to um, provide the plant with the nutrients it needs during the season right as it needs it mm -hmm. gotcha um so because i'm assuming the high value crops are typically things like tomatoes peppers cucumbers uh, strawberries um uh, lettuce for me almost doesn't seem worth it because it's only a five week in the field but it's probably good to test it a couple times just to make sure your fields are in a good state yeah yeah, I think it's it's good to to test um, any high value crop, like any vegetable fruit crop. Um, it, the sap analysis will tell you so much more information than soil or tissue testing can tell you. So I definitely think it would be really useful for lettuce also. Yeah. And then I think like things like blueberries too, perennials work really well for this too, like fruit. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because right now we've got blueberries in and we know we have our pH too high, so we're, we're actively working to knock that down. But um, once we get that adjusted, I know that we can we can do a lot more work on that. This podcast is sponsored by Small Farm University, the go-to resource for gardeners, homesteaders, and farmers around the world. Small Farm University delivers classes online and on demand with training on how to grow crops and how to grow a profitable farm business that serves you, your family, and your community well. Applying what you learn in SFU could save you thousands of hours and thousands of dollars. And it can save you the agony of costly mistakes some make just because they don't know what they don't know. Delivered by real farmers with hands-on experience and expertise, it is unique in its approach, using the ripened method for growing and building a farm or farm business. Here are a few highlights of what SFU has to offer in its growing library of resources. Find your perfect farm property. Whether you are renting or purchasing, this course guides you through vetting the farm property and determining how or if it suits your business needs. We give you the secret sauce for what makes a profitable farm property and help save you thousands of dollars. Start your farm intensive. Fleshing out your farm idea, craft your one-page business plan, and discover the right funding options for your business. Use our business templates, worksheets, and calculators to figure out the numbers as you go. Farmer's Market Success System. Learn how to attract and convert customers by building an unstoppable marketing and business system for your farmer's markets. Production Mastery Series. Learn all about growing, harvesting, and drying greens. Learn about tunnel building and take special classes such as brand new and very popular Elderberry Masterclass. We include real-life examples and calculators for figuring out fertility rates, how much money you are actually making, and where your profit is coming from. Business Systems and Marketing Courses. Learn about the SFU Ripen Formula for Success, develop your marketing plan, and join in for behind-the-scenes tours of real farm businesses. Learn the systems you need to run your business well and how to hire a team to help you. And learn how you can add value to what you produce to generate even more income with minimal additional time and expense. In addition, members of SFU get access to the Growing Farmer Summits on demand with over 100 sessions of targeted areas of interest to farmers. These annual online events have attracted over 100,000 people from around the world, and they are included in your SFU membership as a bonus. SFU membership includes access to a private member group, 
monthly group Q&A sessions, and even one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions where you can get your questions answered and find the support you need. To learn more, visit growingfarmers.com today. Share a little bit about like, because I know some people I've actually had, we've had John on uh, the podcast before, and I highly recommend folks go back and listen to that one. But remind folks a little bit about like, you know, they're like, why would we do all this fancy testing? So remind folks just how degraded like the soils in the US are, well, actually around the world are now at this point. Yeah, um, I think soils are in pretty rough shape because of our cultural practices. Um, I think that we've just, we've just not been looking at soil with the, the right perspective for many decades, mm -hmm. um, with respect to soil structure, infiltration and soil biology. I think soil biology is just now starting to, to catch people's attention, um, in the like mainstream ag mm -hmm. and all the all all the work that soil biology does for us and testing sap testing is what's gonna it's gonna it's like your insurance policy because you you do all this work and you spend all this money to grow a crop but it's hard to know um what the outcome of all your work is going to be until it's time to harvest but with sap testing you're testing every two weeks and you're able to see what's the nutritional integrity of this crop. Like what, what nutrients is it taking up? And if you see a big deficiency, that's going to impact your crop. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately going to impact all the time and money you've put into growing your crop. Um, so I think it's just a great way to monitor the success of, of the crop. And it, it's absolutely worth it um, to protect your investment. Mm -hmm. And I guess what I would say is like, I was actually talking to a grower the other night that doesn't even doing soil samples. And he was saying, well, you know, you're, his comment was something to the effect of, well, the people that are reading it are going to make application recommendations that, you know, help sell more fertilizer. And I said something to the effect of, well, you know, there's many independent labs out there. And I said, you know, we try to soil test twice a year. And I would say, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Um, just look at our crops. And uh, this particular grower has been struggling a lot with the production. And so I would say, you know, we just live or die off the soil tests. But what I would say is the soil tests give you a snapshot of basically once or twice a year and of what's in the soil. If you do a paste test, I think that gives you more of a snapshot of what's available to the plants. But your sap analysis is going to give you a availability of what's available now and what's actually in the plant and what the plant is actually taking up. Right. Yeah. It's powerful to, yeah. to be able to see that. It's like, it's the ultimate, is it getting, is it not getting it? Yes. Yes. So share a little bit about with AEA, kind of like, what are the, some things you've learned while working with them that's kind of really impacted like you're growing? Oh, with, in my training, I, I was given the most comprehensive plant nutrition education that I could have ever dreamed of. Um, I, I learned a lot more about plant nutrition from AEA than in my undergrad. Um, and I'm just, I'm just amazed at um, everything, everything I've learned. A lot of it is 
based on what the roles are of the micronutrients. Uh -huh. And I think the roles of micronutrients is not something that's discussed enough. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the ways that availability of micronutrients changes the integrity of the plant and um, how attractive it is to pests and how vulnerable it is to disease. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, there's, there's a pests and disease being the product of an unhealthy plant that is attracting those things to come and um, decompose it is like probably the most powerful thing I've learned. Mm -hmm. So I, so you're saying we're, we just don't understand a lot of the details and that can make such a big difference instead of just keep putting more and more pesticides on. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are other greatest limiting factors to consider, um, like CO2 availability and water management and water quality. Um, but I think the micronutrients and the, because micronutrients also play key roles in how um, nitrogen is converted into amino acids uh -huh. and the quality of the sugars produced by photosynthesis and the quantity of sugars produced. And so these three factors are um, really going to be what decides if a pest or disease is attracted to the crop. And if you have like, for example, molybdenum is, um, is a key part of protein synthesis to convert nitrogen into amino acids. And if you don't have molybdenum, you can develop excess levels of um, free nitrates in the sap. Mm. And you can see that on the sap test. And that's what is attracting a lot of these um, chewing and sucking pest organisms that are uh -huh. coming to digest that, that simple form of nitrogen, which they can't, they can't digest a full protein. So if your plant is able to convert the simple nitrogen into um, aminos and then into protein, then the pest won't come to the plant because it can't digest it. So you're saying that like right now we have, we, we've been struggling this spring with some aphids and you're saying our problem is probably that we're getting the wrong types of, um, of nitrogen in the plants and that's causing them to just be able to, to feed off of them. Yeah. So the, the, there's something in the sap that's attracting the aphid because it's digestible to the aphid. And so that could be um, uh, nitrates that are in the sap and they're not being converted into amino acids mm -hmm. and then into longer chains and proteins. Um, so molybdenum is something that you might be low in if you have aphids. Um, there's, there's a lot of things you can do to get the, the part of it is also that if the plant um, is in a soil that has a lot of microbes in it, uh -huh. the microbes are processing that nitrogen for you. And then the plant is taking up the amino acid form with from the roots instead of taking up the nitrogen form. Yeah. And over time, that'll save the plant energy and that energy will go into developing like stronger health. Um, but yeah, there's there it, aphids are probably one of the easiest things to get rid of with biology and nutrition. Very cool. All right, and I'm actually looking at my soil test, and I don't even have um, molybdenum on here. I've got everything else, but that's one of the ones that doesn't have it. So um, yeah, I don't even know what my levels are. So I'm probably very low, and I just don't know it. Um, how yeah. many how many different trace minerals are there that we need to be worried about? 
I want to say 13. I don't know the exact number. Yeah, but, but it's higher. It's we, high. we look at cobalt, molybdenum, manganese, iron, silicon, boron, um, magnesium, uh -huh. and of course, calcium is a big one. Calcium is really yeah, big. And what percentage do you like to see calcium? I know we typically like to see between 60 and 70. Um, so on SAP, it's in PPM and we have okay. different optimals for, um, for different crops. So it varies. Gotcha. It's going to again, be what the SAP analysis shows and what you guys have found to be best for that specific crop. Right. Gotcha. And again, it goes back to that. You may see your percentages in the soil look good, but that's not the percentages that actually the plant is uptaking. Right. Gotcha. Um, very cool. All right, let's skip uh, a little bit ahead to your back to your farm. And I know that you're doing some some different things besides just growing of like these perennial fruits. Kind of give us a little bit of an overview of like the different enterprises on the farm. We have horse borders. And so that's um, a separate business that we mm. lease to. And so they graze on 25 acres. We're a total of 35 acres. Mm-hmm. And so then the, the remaining 10 is where I've been developing the beds and the mixed perennial orchard. Mm -hmm. And then we also have um, agritourism business um, with two farm stay units in our residential farmhouse so that we've, we've separated them out with private entrances. And uh -huh. we have campsites also. And we also can host weddings and different small events. Very cool. Um, so then basically you just took your house and cut out two different places for them to stay. Yes. Very cool. Um, and then talk a little bit about the building of your beds too, because I know that was, is that similar to, yeah, share a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, I knew starting out that I needed them to be raised up and I uh -huh. wasn't really sure how to do that other than ordering a bunch of fill dirt. Yeah. And, and so I, I thought back to something I'd done in Utah where I built um, swales on contour mm -hmm. and really just excavated a trench and moved that soil to the backside and um, leveled that out for a nice smooth berm and mm -hmm. then built on that. And so I did that same thing here. And that's how I was able to get a local source of, was a hyper local source of um, fill dirt. And yes. then... I fill that in with organic matter. So over so the, time, there's a there's a yeah. deep level of organic matter developing. So in the swales, you fill the swales then in with like wood chips or, or I'm assuming you've got all this horse manure that you can use. Yeah, the horse manure goes on the top of the berm and then okay. the, the basin will be filled uh, with like decaying logs and sticks mm -hmm. and um, just different organic matter. And how far apart are these berms slash beds built? The some of they, they vary a little bit. They can be between um, twelve to eighteen feet apart. Okay. What did you use to actually bed them up? Were you using like mechanical, or just hand dug, or the first few I hand dug? Um, it was before I bought a tractor. Okay. And. I think I, I was waiting to buy a tractor until, um, I don't know, 
I, I was just waiting till I felt really ready to commit <laughs> yeah. to the tractor. And I think after hand digging enough berm and basins, I realized I was ready. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I built the majority of them with the tractor using the, I'll till two spaces. Um, well, I'll, my tiller is six feet wide. So okay. I'll till a, a row and then I'll come up next to it and then go halfway in so that I'm only tilling an additional three feet out and I'm mm -hmm. over tilling three feet in. Um, so the space I till total is nine feet wide. And then I'll start trenching one side of it and building it up. And then um, that's a, a sandy berm that will level out and then cover that with manure um, using using the bucket. Well, I, I excavate with the bucket um, mm -hmm. and then layer manure and wood chips with the bucket. Yeah. We've found success with like a one or two bottom plow and just using that and just go back at, uh, just basically go one way and then flip around and come back the other way. And that's been really helpful making our raised beds. Oh, nice. Um, how, how high up does that get them? Um, I would say a good 12 to 18 inches between the bottom of the furrow and the top of the bed. Wow. That's um, great. Yeah. It really depends on how many, how close you go and how far, yeah. How long, yeah, how how because you can go multiple passes in the same area and that will continue just to push the soil up. Um we actually created an entire drainage through a field um back in New York. It was a really clayish field. And so we were trying to really drain the whole thing. And we just ran the we had a three-bottom plow, an 18-inch three-bottom plow. So it was a pretty heavy, big big tractor and all, but it really created, I mean, that thing was probably three, three and a half feet deep at the end of the time. So um yeah, wow. it, it worked out quite well. Um yeah, plows are pretty useful tools. Uh, <laughs> I don't like plowing. We, we very rarely plow on our farm, but there's other uses besides plowing for them. So, right. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So, um, talk to us a little bit about like if you could start your farming career over again, like what would you do differently? I'm happy with a lot of my choices because I think I was just doing the best I could with the information I had available. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, I don't see how I could have done it a different way um, yeah. because I just started out looking for any work opportunity that taught me more about plants and farming. And um, and I think, you know, I, I was discouraged a lot to not look at farming as a, a career um, and to look at it as a hobby. Um, and I think that I'm glad that I didn't take that discouragement to heart and I just kept going. Mm -hmm. um, that said, like it is, I think it is really hard for a lot of farmers to make their full-time living from farming, especially small farms, but there are a lot of small farms doing it and just doing awesome. And like, I love to see that. Um, yeah. We're, we're developing our farm for mostly fruit trees. So I think here it's a, a long-term thing to have fruiting trees but i i'm really grateful that i have a a job in farming where i get i get to talk to farmers and um talk about plant nutrition and crop nutrition and i i definitely i'm super super grateful to be at aea and um working in ag both mm -hmm. during the week and on the weekend yeah 
Yeah. 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 It sounds like you're able to take a lot of what you're learning there and apply it to your own place. Um, which is super, super cool. Oh, absolutely. I think if I, if I had to start this farm over again, one thing I would do is, um, instead, cause I started off with like three enterprises in mind. One was the farming, one was an event venue and one was the Airbnb mm-hmm. camping and, um, all the remodeling and like we built a new barn and, um, just all the work that went into the event venue. I think I, I would, if I started over, I would just choose two things. Cause I think I spread myself too thin mm. in the beginning. Yeah. I think that's just farmers in general, but yeah. 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 Well, I appreciate so much you coming on and sharing your story and kind of some details there. There's some great information we kind of dove into on the sap analysis and some of those micronutrients and um, kind of gives me some ideas of what may be some of our challenges here. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your info. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Michael. Yeah. And give us a little bit of a, what is your website for your farm? Our website is www.heartofpalmsranch.com. All right. And you have an Instagram too, which is just heart of palms ranch. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I, I post a lot also on my personal farming Instagram, which is at Shelly plants. Okay. Awesome. And then if folks want to follow up, it's advancing And uh highly recommend you go back and listen again to John's podcast and uh, check them out because they're doing some great work. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. All right. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. So there you have it. Another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.